The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're in part two of part 11. In other words, our 13-part study, 13 part study of the life of Christ based on Thomas's harmony. We're in part 11, which means really close to the end. I'm going to spend this Sunday reviewing a lot from what we covered last week for a couple of reasons. One, we've got people that weren't here last week. Uh, and I think this part of Christ's ministry, the Olivet Discourse, is really important, important enough for us to repeat. And two, even for those that were here last week, I had questions from several people. And it made me think, well, you might have, I'm talking about myself here, might have assumed a little bit too much in talking about Daniel's prophecy from chapter 9. So I want to start there again. And again, we'll make some forward progress, um, but we won't start the parables, which was the next thing up on our list until next Sunday. So again, this is a really significant discourse. Matthew has six of them in his gospel. Uh, his whole book is organized around these six discourses, and they're very clearly marked off with introductory and closing formulas. Uh, the Olivet Discourse is the last of the six. <clears throat> Remember the setting. Christ has already come in on Sunday of Passion Week and made his triumphal entry. Crowds are recognizing him as the Messiah goes back out of the city to Bethany. He comes in again on Monday, and after that great triumphal entry, he cleanses the temple. Same thing he had done at the very beginning of his ministry. And that prompts reaction uh, later from the religious leaders, you know, what's your authority for doing these kinds of things? So on Tuesday, as he's gone back out of the city and come back in again on Tuesday morning, uh, he engages with those religious leaders. And he feels a bunch of questions from them not questions where they're really asking for information, but questions where they're trying to trap him. I mean, you can see the progress of the, his enemies. You've seen it all through his ministry, but at this point, they're really trying to catch him in something that, they, that he's saying so that they can bring charges against him. And he answers those questions very skillfully. He also turns the tables on them and begins to ask them some questions. Uh, and really, that climaxes with his, well, you look at the kinds of questions he's asking them. He's pointing out to them the kinds of things that they were guilty of as Israel's religious leaders and really leading the people astray because they were guilty of these things, things like hypocrisy, the desire to be noticed by men rather than really be pleasing to God, their misunderstanding of truth. These were the guys that were supposed to be teaching people from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. And they had corrupted the Old Testament. They had laid on so much more of man-made tradition than actually teaching the Word of God and their own personal neglect of weightier matters of the law. So all that climaxes at the end of chapter 23 in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Again, he's not talking just about the religious leaders there, but they had really had an influence to create this kind of situation. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What's he talking about there? We, we asked this last week as well. What is their house? It's the temple. I mean, he's anticipating the destruction of the temple, and he's going to talk about that even in more detail when he's talking to his disciples in the Olivet Discourse. 
I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, obviously, they're going to see him later that week, right? They're going to see him eventually. At least some of these folks would see him as he's standing before Pilate and ends up being crucified outside the city. But what he's saying that as a people, there's going to be a time where even though he is their Messiah and they've rejected him, he's going away. And he's not going to come back until they recognize that he is their Messiah. And that, that of course, is going to be in the midst of the tribulation period. So that's the preliminary background. Jesus then leaves the temple again on Tuesday morning. In, now we're, we're now into Tuesday afternoon. He crosses the Kidron Valley and goes up to the Mount of Olives. And that overlooks the temple complex. And as he is doing that, his disciples are saying, Wow, look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? It's a gorgeous structure. And he, that's when he starts into his discourse. Now, we've given the outline of the discourse here. We talked about the setting of the discourse, the, the questions that the disciples ask after Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. He start, goes on to describe the beginning of birth pangs and the abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesied that marks the end of the beginning of birth pangs it's the beginning, starts the beginning of the Great Tribulation. We, we went through all that. I'm going to cover it briefly again today. We then got into the coming of the Son of Man and the signs of nearness but unknown time. We didn't quite finish that. We will try to finish that up this morning. And then over the next couple of Sundays, we'll look at five parables that he teaches to really cultivate faithfulness and watchfulness. Remember, he's preparing not only the 12, but those that would believe the 12's message for this period in between, the period between his first and second coming. So these parables are not just for his immediate audience, but all those who would come to believe in Messiah through the apostles' message. And then finally, the last part of the Olivet Discourse is judgment. It's the sheep and goats judgment of Matthew 25. Okay, so again, the questions were really threefold. When will these things be, that is, the destruction of the temple that he just predicted? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So you might think, well, how did they know he was coming again? He's, he's talked about that, even though, and it, it seems like the apostles didn't understand for a long time that he was going to come back after some period of time. He's going to talk about that more as we continue through the Olivet Discourse. But you remember in Acts 1, after the resurrection, before he ascends back up to heaven, they say, well, is it now? Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he doesn't, he says, he doesn't say, no, it's not now. He says, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which have been established by the Father. But at this point, you can see where they're kind of thinking all these things are going to happen together. That is, the destruction of the temple is going to be a precursor for Messiah's coming and the establishment of his kingdom when he comes. And what Jesus doesn't reveal, even though he's going to talk about both of those things in the Olivet Discourse, his, he's going to talk about destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He's also going to talk about things in the far future, but he doesn't let them know right then that there's this long gap of time in between. And we, we had some discussion about that last week. I mean, how can we know from where we stand in history what was fulfilled in 70 AD and what's still to come? Well, I think there's certain things that are clear about that, right? I mean, we know from where we are now in a way that they couldn't then that it did come in 70 AD and the Romans did completely wipe the temple off the map. 
But we also know that there are certain things that he talks about in the Olivet Discourse that have not yet happened, particularly the signs of things happening in the heavens and things that are expounded on more in the book of Revelation. Of course, Revelation was written after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, so that in itself tells us that there's still things in the future to come. Revelation talks about the the false Christ that's going to rule over the world over the last three and a half years. So I think, you know, we're at a great advantage from the apostles because we stand in a point where more time has passed. We can look back and see what was fulfilled in 70 AD and recognize that there are things still to come. The one thing that I wanted to point out that I didn't make, I don't think I made as clear last week, is this is not an unusual phenomenon in Scripture, right? I mean, a lot of times in Old Testament prophecy, you'll read things in a passage, and it sounds like one thing's going to happen immediately after the other. Can you think of an example of that? And it doesn't happen that way. There is a long gap in between. Isaiah, do you have one? Maybe like the 69 and 70th week. It's a prime example. We're going to talk about that more today. But you've got the prophecy of the 70 weeks, and when you read that in Daniel, it sounds like one's going to follow immediately upon the heels of the other. Now, I'm going to make a case today where I think there's indicators that even there, there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. But in honor of Isaiah, let me read one from Isaiah chapter 11 uh, that does the same kind of thing. This is Isaiah 11, uh, beginning in verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and that's just a, a metaphorical way of talking about a descendant of Jesse, which we know David was the son of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Who's that talking about? He's talking about Christ. Did he do all of that at his first coming? No. I mean, he did part of it. He was certainly uh, from the, the line of Jesse and he certainly had counsel and strength and he helped people during his earthly ministry in incredible ways. But he, he did not slay the wicked, and he didn't strike the earth with the rod of his mouth the way that he's going to. That same language is used in the book of Revelation when Christ comes back the second time. But if you're just reading Isaiah, it sure sounds like that's going to happen one after the other. And again, that's just one example, along with what we're talking about here in, in Daniel 9, uh, that scripture does this there's a fancy phrase for it called prophetic foreshortening and the idea is that you've got a prophet that's looking at two events one pretty close in time to himself and the other far away and you can think of it as mountain peaks and in between there's all this passage of time and other things that happen but he's just talking about the two things as he sees them from where he stands with the passage of time you can see that there is a valley in between. There's other things that have happened. I just There's a number of examples that we could look of, of that in Scripture, but <clears throat> we're going to look at one particularly this morning, Daniel chapter 9. So I, let's go there now. <clears throat> How many of you feel like you do understand 
Daniel 9, 24 through 27, just because you've spent time there and you've heard people teach about it. Okay, good. So, but not so good that there's not more hands. Uh, let me, let me read. It's not a, uh, I don't think it's super difficult, but it does take some, You've got to hear people teach about it, and you've got to make sense of it in the whole of Scripture. It's a really important passage, and Daniel itself as a book is a really important book. Just to give you another example of this kind of prophetic foreshortening that we're talking about, <clears throat> there's two chapters in the book of Daniel, chapters 2 and chapter 7, where dreams are related about this series of Gentile kingdoms that start in Daniel's day and really go all the way down to the kingdom of Christ. And they talk about the kingdom of the false Christ immediately before the kingdom of Christ. Now, <clears throat> when you read both of those dreams, again, one of them uses a statue figure to relate the dream and the different empires. The other uses a series of beasts. As you read through both of those, it sounds like one comes right on the heels of the other. And many of those kingdoms do. But when you get down to the kingdom of Rome, you've got two different phases of that kingdom. One is the historical Rome that's already passed off the scene as far as from our perspective. But it's, you can think of the, the kingdom of the false Christ as a revival of that Roman Empire in the future. And the way that Daniel describes it, both in the statue and in the series of beasts, you don't realize that there's a long gap of time in between. Daniel 9 addresses uh, kind of the timetable of that series of Gentile kingdoms. And again, you, you don't see the gap until it becomes clear, particularly for, with the passage of time. Let's, let's read the passage again, and then I'm going to draw, <clears throat> I love diagrams, I'm going to draw a little diagram out here to try to help us understand it. So this is Daniel 9, beginning in verse 24. And you remember the context here. Daniel uh, had been taken captive as an exile, as a teenager, into Babylon. He is reading the prophet Jeremiah himself, and he recognizes that that 70 years of exile that had been, that had been predicted was coming to an end. So that prompts him to prayer. He is praying for the restoration of Israel. He's praying for the restoration of the temple. He's praying that God would do what he said he would do after the 70 years was over. And as he's doing that, he receives uh, this divine revelation uh, from one of God's messengers. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. So it's not just 70 years, and that 70 years is about to come to a close, but 77s of years have been decreed for your people and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now those... Those are all things, really, they're dealing with Israel as a nation. And you can hear in them even the anointing of the most holy place. It's talking about the temple. That's the way that that term would have been understood. The sealing up of vision and prophecy, there won't be any more need of it. It's really looking towards the consummation of things, I would argue, particularly in the millennial kingdom and in, in the new heavens and new earth. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, remember it had already been overrun too by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, 69 of the 70 weeks 
from that decree until the rebuilding, uh, until Messiah the Prince, I should say. It will be built again, that, that is the city will be, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, and it's important to recognize here, not only after the 62, but after the seven first. So you've got the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. You're actually at the end of 69 weeks here. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And it, its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, that is the prince of the people who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the 70th week. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So let's sketch this out. We're able now, from where we stand in history, to determine the date of this decree that allowed uh, the people of Israel to rebuild the city. It was, <clears throat> so I'm getting ahead of myself here. The 69 weeks, if you multiply 69 by 7, that's 483 years. So the decree is by a man named Artaxerxes. He issued a decree, and this is related in Nehemiah chapter 2. Remember, Nehemiah was his cupbearer. Nehemiah came into the king one day, and his face was sad, and he asked him why, and he told him that you know his city laid in ruins, basically. So Artaxerxes allows the people of Israel to go back and rebuild the city. And we know pretty precisely the date of that decree now as 444 B.C. So there's a period of 49 years and then another period of 434 years where, one, we believe the, the 49 years, and, and this is a little disputed, maybe not as clear, but that was the end of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. That took about 49 years from the time of that decree. But then at the end of that uh, 69 sevens, or 434 years, in fact, down to the exact day from the day that the decree was issued was when the Messiah came into uh, Jerusalem, the triumphal entry that we talked about at the very beginning of Passion Week. So you can do the math. 69 times 7, 483 years it's very important to recognize that for a year of, at that time, in Bible times, not just with Israel, but in other ancient cultures, a year was 360 days. We measure a year differently now. But that's exactly the number of days from uh, March the 1st, or sorry, Nisan 1, which would be March the 5th in 444 B.C., down to March 30 of A.D. 33, the date of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> I should qualify. Uh, there's a guy named Harold Honer who's written a book called Chronolog Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And he really has detailed not just this prophecy, but he's dealt with a lot of different aspects of the chronology of Christ's life. And that's where these calculations come from. Now, there, there was an earlier guy, a guy named Sir Robert Anderson, who calculated the same thing, but his starting point is different it's off by a year from here, and his ending point is different, but it still works out the same. Uh, it still works out that the same number of days existed between the beginning point with the decree and the triumphal entry. So 
I can, if you want to, if you're interested in reading even more of the detail of these calculations, I can provide that to you. But it does work out uh, very precisely down to the day of Christ's triumphal entry. Now, two things, according to Daniel 9, happened after the triumphal entry. What were they? In, in the proper order. From what we just read in Daniel 9. Well, he was cut off. Okay, he was cut off. What's that a reference to? Crucifixion. I mean, that happened within a week of his triumphal entry. What was the second thing that was anticipated to happen? The city would be destroyed. Now, already we have a gap, right? Because one happened immediately on the heels of the prediction, or within a week. That was the cutting off of the Messiah, the crucifying of the Messiah. But the next one didn't happen until 70 A.D. So again, you're reading along back in Daniel's day, you're thinking, well, you've got the destruction of the city right after the crucifixion of the Messiah. It didn't happen that way. We know that it happened that way, and that's how we understand that there is a gap between the 69th and 70th week. And in fact, the very, uh, the very idea of separating them out that way, of saying initially that there are 77s and then splitting up, up into... 7 and 62 and then a 70th implies that there could be some gap in between there and it's very easy for us to see in history that there has been and in fact we're living in that gap still today right we we can look back and see the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and we can look forward particularly with the book of Revelation and recognize the things that are going to happen in that 70th week but there is a 70th week it's a week that's divided into two halves, three and a half years each, and that is when the prince of the people who is to come makes a firm covenant with the many for one week. He makes a covenant at the beginning of this seven-year period, and then halfway through it, he breaks that covenant. That is where the abomination of desolation comes in, and that is where we have these, this time period that's variously noted as either time times and half a times, which is three and a half years, or 42 months, or 1,260 days. They're all the same time period. And this 70th week is divided into half, one each. So let's look at that in some more detail. This is a, scene, a slide that I showed last week. But this is that 70th week that's still future to us today. And we believe that that kicks off with the rapture of the church because... This 70th week is also known as the day of the Lord. It's what the Old Testament prophets look forward to. And it's a time where God is pouring out wrath, not only upon Israel, even though that's part of who he pours it out on, but on all the nations. First three and a half years are described as the beginning of birth pangs in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24. We saw that last week. The last three and a half as... Uh, doesn't use the words the great tribulation but it is a time of great distress like the world has never seen before or will ever see again and as you compare that with the book of revelation and with the seven seal scroll you see that the first really the first six scrolls are mentioned in the first six seals of revelation chapter six and i'm going to show you that more clearly than i did last week and that what happens with the abomination of desolation? What exactly is that? 
Second Thessalonians two talks about what is the it? Antichrist comes and sits in the temple and declares himself God. Exactly, that's exactly right. The false Christ takes his place in the temple and declares himself God, and and really makes the claim that he is the true Christ, and he rules all over the world for that last three and a half years. And Revelation thirteen talks about that, and really the rest of Revelation from thirteen to nineteen talks about that. He's the one that's in power. When Christ comes back, uh, he's the one that he desolates the temple, but Christ desolates him and all of his armies with him. So that last three and a half years is really under the seventh seal, which includes the seven trumpets and the seven bowl judgments. And you can see, as you read through the book of Revelation, the progression and severity of the judgments from the things that are just described as the beginning of birth pains in the first three and a half years to this terrible things that are happening uh, both cosmically in the heavens and warfare and just tremendous you know the false Christ is putting to death anybody that doesn't embrace the mark of the beast so you can see that intensification you see it in Revelation you can see it also in Christ Olivet Discourse now this last three and a half years again it's, it's also described as 42 months. It's also described as 1,260 days. There's other things that are going on during this period of time, and I want to read some of those from, for you from the book of Revelation. Remember that the two witnesses that are spoken of in Revelation chapter 11 have a, a high-octane ministry in that they can breathe out fire and, and destroy anybody that comes against them, at least for three and a half years. And he says what... He says this uh, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That is that last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. Revelation 12, 4 through 6, we see that this is also a time of protection for the nation of Israel. Now, I'm, I'm having to read a little more context here just so you understand what's being said. But Revelation 12, beginning of verse 4, remember... Uh, he sees a vision of the dragon standing before the woman who was about to give birth, the, the dragon being Satan, the woman being the nation of Israel, and the one that she gives birth to is the Messiah, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child or destroy him. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who's a, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, as the reader of Revelation, you have all the rest of the book, the Bible, as background. But notice how it just skips over all of Christ's public ministry and the fact that he dies on the cross. It's just talking about the fact that he's going to be born, the fact that he's going to eventually rule over the nations, and then that he will also be caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Same period of time. Three and a half years, 42 months. Okay, let's look now at a comparison between the Olivet Discourse and what's described in the book of Revelation. Now, Christ says in the Olivet Discourse, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And the first seal, the seventh seal scroll says, I look and behold, behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Those of you that were in our study on Revelation, remember that we're not saying that 
the false Christ, but he represents false Christ. And particularly, uh, you know, the, the ones that have to be worried about being duped by a false Christ are the ones that don't know the true Christ. If you're already convinced that Jesus is the Christ, you're not going to be misled. But there will be many, particularly after the church is caught up into heaven, that will be misled by these, by these various false Christs culminating in the false Christ. Matthew 24, 6, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And in the book of Revelation, the red horse went out. And him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth. So you've got these false Christs that are promising peace, but then the red horse represents warfare, that men should slay one another. In various places there will be famines. That's particularly prominent during a place of war. And that's what Revelation 6, 6 is describing, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, do not harm the oil and the wine. That's the rising price of food because of its scarcity. And then finally, earthquakes. In the last part of chapter 24, I'm sorry, in the last part of verse 7 in chapter 24, and I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. Now, <clears throat> we talked about this last week. These general signs of uh, false peace or false Christ and warfare and famine and uh, earthquakes, I mean, we've seen those. We've seen those from where we stand in history already from the time that Christ pronounces this discourse until the present day. So I think, I think this could be included in what Christ is pronouncing here. But we can see, too, by comparison of what Revelation says, that this future seven-year period, the first three and a half years, perhaps it's an intensification of these kinds of things. Christ tells his apostles, you know, you're going to see these things, and that doesn't mean that the end is here yet. Uh, things are going to get even worse before Christ returns, but he, he lets them know that these kind of things are, are going to come. And again, I think that warning is a fair warning for all the believers that would come to faith in Christ through the apostles' ministry and the establishment of the church. And I'm sure you've heard, like I have, you certain times of the uh, when things get bad in our lives in general and you hear about earthquakes and warfare like we're hearing about right now, people think, well, we must be in the end times. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing to think because I think we are in the end times relative to the whole story of the Bible. But... What Christ is telling us in this passage is, you know, there's still things to come that are going to be even worse. Um, not for the church, because we'll be out of here, but he's just laying out that these are the preliminary things and things will get worse during the last three and a half years. So that kind of brings us to where we were last week. We talked about the birth pangs as being a very common figure in the Old Testament for a time of distress. We talked about the abomination of desolation as being um, the end of that period of the beginning of birth pangs and where the Antichrist really takes the throne. He's involved in making that peace agreement at the beginning of the seven years, but then he breaks the agreement halfway through the week and, and he assumes power. And, and that's when he takes his place in the temple and claims to be God. And it's at that point that things really start to go south. Uh, increasing human agony in the day of the Lord will be climaxed by the Messiah's return. We talked about the coming of the Son of Man, the fact that, uh, you know, that's who Israel's looking for still. 
because they don't believe that Jesus was the Christ when he came the first time. We're looking for him, for Christ, because we know he is. And we know he came the first time, and there's a uh, period of time in between before he returns. But he will only return after this long predicted time of tribulation that we've just looked at, both in the Olivet Discourse and a little bit in the book of Revelation. And what's fascinating to me, uh, and this is what we didn't get to last week, was how early in Scripture this was anticipated. The fact that, one, despite all of God's goodness to the nation of Israel, they weren't faithful to the covenant, and they rebelled against God, and God punished them increasingly until he kicked them out of the land. But their restoration uh, back to the land and ultimately to a right relationship with God through a new covenant is all through the Old Testament Scriptures. And I just want to read some of those to you just so you get a feel for them. So even in the book of Deuteronomy, and I think about the setting of Deuteronomy, this is Moses' last chance before he dies to exposit the law to the people. They've not even entered the promised land yet, and yet he's already laid out in chapters 28 and 29 one path, if they're faithful and obey, they'll be blessed in all aspects. But if they're not faithful and disobey, they'll be disciplined, with the ultimate discipline being cast out of the land. Here's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your at cast are the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. Now you can, you can look in Old Testament history and recognize, and even in modern history, that there have been returns to the land by Israel, but none of those are the one this is talking about. It's talking about an ultimate return and uh, ultimate reconciliation between God and Israel where they are blessed as a people and they live according to the way that the prophets describe them living. And you think about right now, and we had a, a question last week about Israel being restored to statehood in 1948. Yeah, they are back in the land, but they are surrounded by enemies. They are at anything but peace, and they're not dominating the rest of the nations the way that, uh, the way that scriptures talk about that they will. But there's still many that are that are all over the world. That's so, right. Isn't he talking about all of them being back in the yes. land? Yes. Yeah, all so twelve th- tribes. Exactly. So that's another clear distinction. You got more people living outside the land of Israel today than you do inside. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to make that distinction that even though those kinds of returns have happened already, even the return from the Babylonian exile, the return in 1948, uh, there's an ultimate return that this is anticipating, and that won't happen until after the tribulation period and, and into the millennial kingdom. But that is a major theme of the Old Testament, the fact that God has given Israel this particular piece of real estate and they would be blessed in it if they were faithful to the covenant. The other big change for them is the new covenant, the fact that their heart as a nation will be changed. You know, They've had faithful remnants all along the way as part of the people that were obedient, but the whole nation will be obedient. That will be a huge difference. And that, that will really go back to the way it was with the law. The millennial kingdom it will be a mosaic-like system. You've got temple, 
priests, sacrifices. All that is God's finishing out his plan with the nation of Israel. When you say the whole nation of Israel will be, will, will come to Christ, what's left of it? That's the right. Remnant. I mean, it, he, he divides the earth into half and then the third. And yes. Whatever. So what's left of Israel will be That's right. Believers. That's an important point. That only happens after Israel has been refined, and a lot of them will lose their lives. But when Revelation 12 talks about them being taken into the wilderness for a time of protection, all those people are believers, and they will be protected all the way into the millennial kingdom, and then they will continue to reproduce. They're not yet in glorified bodies, and all the nation will know the Lord. Their children will know the Lord from their youth up because the law of God will be written on their hearts at that point in time, and rather than having an inclination to disobey and rebel like they have had in their history, their inclination will be to obey the Lord. So let's just let's finish out this morning by reading Matthew 24, 32 to 41. I think we looked at part of this last week. I'm going to start back actually in verse 29 because this is describing uh, signs that we haven't seen yet with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, you could ask the question, are they mourning in repentance, or are they mourning because they're about to be destroyed? Yeah, they're, they're going to get wiped out. And, of course, Revelation picks up on this language and talks about the same thing. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That too is an allusion back to Daniel 7. He'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now I don't think this is the rapture because he's, he's coming back and as we continue to read through chapter 25 he's coming all the way to the earth. And again, this is God gathering elect from his people, from Israel, uh, during that period of time. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he, Messiah, is near right at the door. Uh, again, that's just, a, that's just a symbol in the same way that you recognize when certain things happen in flora and fauna that a new season is approaching. Know that when these things happen, Christ himself is approaching. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. We dealt with that in detail last week. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. And again, this is consistent with what the New Testament teaches about the coming of Christ. We know generally things that take place before he can come back. But we don't know the exact day or the hour. And anybody that tries to tell you uh, that they do, you should go from as far away from them as you can. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. In what way? Well, in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, they were doing all that despite the fact that Noah was building this huge boat and it had never rained. And, and Noah's proclaiming his message, look, it's about to flood. The whole world's going to be destroyed. Nobody believed him. And they just kept on with their daily lives right up till the day that the flood came. Well, that's going to be the same way with the coming of the Son of Man. 
They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. There shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Again, uh, people will will say that this is talking about the rapture. I don't believe that's what is being spoken of here. They don't even know much about the church at this point other than the fact that Christ is going to build it. I think the, the teaching, the divine revelation about the rapture is going to come later. What it's talking about here is just the fact that humanity is going to be divided into two different kinds uh, with two different destinies. He's going to talk about that more in Revelation, or, sorry, in Matthew chapter 25. Sheep and the goats. One's going to be... Uh, remaining in the sense of, I believe, in, in the sense of entering the millennial kingdom with the Lord, the ones that are taken away here are taken away to judgment. The people that would embrace this as the rapture would see it the other way around. All right, that takes us down to the parables. That's really what I wanted to get through uh, this morning. Uh, does that make it more clear? Uh, are there any questions about anything that we've covered this morning? Again, Daniel is a really important book. I think it's one of the easier Old Testament prophets because it's not nearly as long as most of them. And it lays out this long-range plan with the nation of Israel. Chapters 2 and 7 are very similar. You can compare those and see the Gentile kingdoms that are laid out in the future. Chapter 9 is right there with them in kind of seeing the, the timeline, if you will, of how these events are going to happen. Okay, David and then Denise. Do you think part of the New Testament emphasis on you don't know the time is because there was such a clear structure of you could start, finish this period of time, and then after this gap of patience is expired, there's a clear start and a clear finish. That's the only time that we don't have a prescribed time. So you think that's part of it, just being emphatic that this element is not going to be known? Yeah, I mean, why do you think that God or Christ doesn't give us the day of his return. What? Let me ask the question another way. What's the difference between my saying that Christ is going to come sometime in the next 20 years and, and saying that he's going to come next Friday at 12 o'clock? I mean, it, it makes a difference on how you live, obviously, and you're going, to, you're going to do things differently if you know he's coming next Friday for sure versus knowing that he's going to come in some general sense in the future. Um, by God's wisdom and his plan, he wants us to always be expecting his coming and for that to have a purifying effect on our lives. I would say the New Testament emphasis is, again, you know, and for example, Paul's letters in First and Second Thessalonians, he's talking a lot about the day of the Lord and the fact that Christ is going to come and catch some people unawares and really encouraging people to be ready for his coming. He's doing that even before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. But the idea is, on the one hand, we don't know the precise day, but we're always to be ready. And to me, that's consistent all the way through the New Testament teaching. The book of Revelation is the same way. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Uh, and you, there isn't a sign that we're looking for now. Now, some people want to take 2 Thessalonians 2 this way and, and, and make the argument that Christ won't come until... Uh, the great apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed. I think that's a misunderstanding of that passage. What he's saying is, you think that you're in the day of the Lord now? Look, these two things are not there. 
You haven't seen the great apostasy and you haven't seen the man of lawlessness revealed. Therefore, you cannot be in the day of the Lord. We don't have anything that has to happen now before Christ comes back for, the, for his own at the rapture. So we, we're living in, in the expectation of that. Okay, let me get Denise and then I'll go to Kathleen. I just didn't quite, I don't know, I was writing or something, didn't quite follow. Verse 31, when he sends out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they gather his elect from the four winds and from the end of one end of heaven to the other. You said that's the Jews? Well, I don't know that it would have to be just the Jews, okay. but certainly they'll be part of that elect group. And they, they, are, they are preserved at the halfway point and taken to a place in the wilderness. So this is I don't think like it's, sort of yeah, I don't think it's necessarily to take them to, up to be with the Lord because he's, you know, he's eventually going to come down to the earth. Uh, we come with him and glorify bodies at this point. I think this is more his gathering of the elect, perhaps not necessarily just from Israel, but also from the other nations. Be at that, out, out in the wilderness? No, no, just to, uh, to be with him, basically. Similar to what we're going to see with the sheep and goats judgment where, uh, you know, these are going to, the, the goats are going to go into eternal damnation. The sheep are entering into the joy of their master, into the eternal kingdom. Like, is that at a different time than, is, is that describing kind of in general what then he goes on down here to say, like two women will be grinding one? Are you saying those are coming out the same thing, or those are two separate things? Okay. I think they are approximately the same thing, okay. yeah. Yeah, I just don't, I don't see the raptures happening at that point in the, you know, the way he's describing the discourse. And I, I would see the raptures not revealed until after the church itself is more clearly formed and, and clearly understood. And then the fact that the church, uh, God has not intended us for wrath, but for salvation. I think that's why we're raptured before the, the day of the Lord is so that we don't endure the wrath of God. We don't have to. Kathleen. What Denise is saying first, so he comes and then he gathers. Yes. Okay, so that's probably going towards the separating of the sheep from the yep. goats. And that's what I think. And helping all the wounded and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, the way that they treated Israel in particular and is and one of the criteria. And a lot of the elect will be themselves wounded and hurting, and that's why the angels have to be a part of it and all. So my question is, if you, are, if you have become a believer during the tribulation and you know the rapture has occurred, so you, are, you know now you're in the last seven years, and then for sure you know at the midpoint when he sets himself up as God, so you know there's only three and a half years left before he returns, this would really vitalize, really make you really be a part of God's purposes during that time, I would think. It would be like the in the middle of all this nightmare, what a great encouragement. They will know, three and a half years, he's coming. Well, they'll know that, but at the same time, they'll be running for their lives yeah, because they're going to face tremendous... such a comfort as that. Yes. We don't need that comfort now. There are times like Ukraine right now would love that comfort, it wouldn't be a comfort to them because they would have missed the revel they would have missed the rapture. Yeah, but we have the comfort of knowing that the rapture's coming, right? right. So ours is a different 
kind of anticipation. We don't anticipate the wrath of God and even the trouble of the Great Tribulation, but we anticipate the coming of Christ, and we, we do have plenty of trouble in the world to want that to happen. It's like the worst ever, the Bible says. That's right. Like no other time, we can't even, looking at the worst things, the Holocaust yep. and everything, can't compare. Exactly. So they do get to know three and a half years he's coming. Yes. And again, it might be a little longer depending on when they come to faith in Christ. But there will be uh, a great multitude, according to Revelation 7, that comes to faith in Christ. You've got the, the 144,000 that are spared from the wrath of God. Those are from the 12 tribes of Israel. But then you've got this innumerable multitude that come from all the nations. Well, they too come from most Jews today even speak several languages. So from wherever they're gathered, Jews are spread out all over the world. Those 144,000 come from who know where. Well, all that Revelation says is that they come from those 12 tribes. It doesn't yeah. really give us a geography. It refers it does talk about 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Right, So, but they could be spread out all over they could the be. world. They could be, yes. In all kinds of languages. Yes. What a, what a missionary exactly. effort that new believers can become a part of. It's so encouraging to know Christ is returning really soon. Yeah. I mean, I think the 12,000 are sealed and, and converted very quickly for that very purpose of being able to evangelize throughout the world. So if you look at it from the destruction end, yeah. But if you look at it from the ministry end, it's probably who, what minister wouldn't like to know that on, in, in a week Jesus will return? I mean, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have the same motivation, though, right? Again, we don't know the week thing, but we have the same motivation of knowing that Christ is going to return, knowing what's going to happen when he does return, and, and sharing that message. Andre and, and then and Norma. Um, in answering your question, um, if we knew exactly when he was going to come, like in, when Peter said, how, because of what you've done for us, how ought we to live? But also reminds me of the parable of the ten virgins, he, you know, where the five were just not prepared and the five were. Right. Basically, the five who were prepared are how we're supposed to live, always being obedient to God, and the five who didn't, were, were not prepared were those who were just not obedient to God until it was too late. That's right. Yeah, those parables, and we're going to get into those next week, really teach the idea that there is going to be a long delay on the one hand, but we're to be prepared and faithful through that delay for him coming at any time. And Norma? Just a point of clarification. Did you say that verses like 40 and 41 refers to Israel during the time of the tribulation or and not the rapture of the church. I, I don't think those refer to the rapture. I do think it's talking about perhaps not just Israel, but the two classes of humanity for whatever nation that they're part of. One will be taken to judgment, one will not. Oh, you're, it's referring them to judgment. Yes. Believers versus unbelievers. Rather than being caught up in the air to be with the Lord. That's right. Now, I should, I should specify, you look back at uh, verse 39. Some people will make the argument that the, the taking away is a taking away to judgment based on uh, the comparison to Noah's generation. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Um, it is a different word there for taking, but I think the concept is the same. In the same way that that generation was taken away to judgment, uh, 
uh, one will be taken, the other left. In those two cases, I would see it as taken to judgment rather than taken to be with the Lord. And this is after the second coming occurs. He it's, comes and then he... And then he judges. He gathers the elect and then he judges at the end of that period. The sheep and goats judgment. But he didn't come twice. He comes... He, we are, we are gathered with him in the air. He doesn't come down. He doesn't come he all the way to the there. very end. That's right. Only he only comes once, once all the way to the earth. That's the second coming. That's right. Is then verse 40 and 41 at the second coming? Yes. Because we go on to live on the earth. I mean, he revitalizes it, but believers remain and live on the earth. That's right. There's a cleanup period after the tribulation. The millennial kingdom takes place on this earth, and then there's uh, the new heavens and new earth that follow after the great white throne judgment. And we live on the earth then, too. We live on a new earth then. Yeah. I can give you a silly answer. Okay, good. So, um, during the millennial kingdom, so you were talking about when the Jews are are gathered away to be in the wilderness and they're given new hearts, even the babies like all growing up. In the millennial kingdom, will all the Jews always throughout the whole time remain faithful to the Lord and it's the other nations that will start to rebel but no Jews? That's what I think. I know there are people that differ with that, but I think that once they've kind of entered into the Lord with the new covenant and once they've been converted as a people in the wilderness and, and come into the millennial kingdom that they will all know the Lord and that it is only the other nations that rebel at the end. And, that, you know, there's plenty of them. They're called Gog and Magog, and they, they've multiplied over the course of the thousand years, and all the people that were lost during the tribulation period have been replenished, if you will, and those are the ones that will end up in the rebellion at the end. Okay, if you want to do some advanced reading for next week, uh, just read those parables. In Matthew chapter 24, uh, beginning in verse 45. Okay, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, again, we're thankful for the revelation of your word. Uh, we want to know it and understand it as best we possibly can. We recognize there are some things that it's hard for us to know with clarity until they come to pass. But we know the general outlines and themes are clear. Uh, we know that Christ is coming back. We know that for those of us that have put our faith in Christ in this age, that we'll be spared from the coming wrath. Um, and we know also that you'll save many during the tribulation. So it's a, a demonstration both of your righteous wrath against sin and against a world of rebellious people on the one hand, but also of long-suffering and mercy to continue to proclaim the gospel even during the tribulation period we thank you that you that you have chosen those whom you will save that you will make sure they are saved and you will keep them all the way to the end i pray that uh, these truths that we've looked at this morning and that we anticipate even more in the coming weeks will continue to influence our thinking uh, it will make a difference in the choices that we make in the way that we live and that we will uh, will be found ready when Christ comes and that we'll hear those words well done thy good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master thank you for the time we've had together this morning uh, go with us and help us to be faithful servants of Christ this week in his name we pray
Amen.